Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. It is Saturday, April 27th, 2019, here on WSOE 89.3 FM, or if you are listening after the fact on podcast.com. It is day three of the NFL draft, and for this episode, this is solely going to be sort of a review, recap, analysis of the NFL draft, primarily looking at days one and two, first, second, third round. Um, If you follow me on Twitter, Brad Clear underscore Clear spelled K-L-I-E-R. I had been pretty much live tweeting this entire thing since day or since pick one through pretty much the end of the second round yesterday. Um, But yeah, so I'm going to give you my thoughts, talk about the Giants, talk about the Raiders, uh, some picks I liked in the first round, uh, value picks, the awesomeness of the second round, um, and then, you know, I'll get into a big discussion on Josh Rosen and the Dolphins and the Seahawks and all these teams who are maneuvering and trading around and all that in the draft. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear. Let's get right into it. So, the first thing I want to talk about coming out of this draft has to be the New York Giants. Um, And simply put, Daniel Jones at sixth overall may be the worst draft pick in the history of the NFL draft. Genuinely may be the worst pick in the history of the draft. We had heard that this could be a possibility that he could go sixth. We had heard that there was a team that had Daniel Jones as their number one quarterback on their board. The Daniel Jones hype, specifically connected to the Giants, got very big. I think personally what I thought going into this draft was that Jones was going to be there at 17, and if the Giants wanted him, they could have had him there or they could have traded for Rosen. What the reality was, was that good old Dave Gettleman was smitten with Daniel Jones and jumped at the first chance he could get to get him. Now, the common complaint that people have said, or not common, a complaint that has been said is that, oh, he could, he would have been there at 17. It does not matter if he would or would not have been there at 17 or that he was picked at 6th or whatever. The fact of the matter is that the entire Giants franchise has now been staked on a highly flawed quarterback prospect who had no business even going in the first round, let alone in the top 50 picks of the draft. Daniel Jones is not even one of the 50 best prospects in this draft. The idea that people who like Daniel Jones have of him is, look, He's big. He's tall. He's very athletic. Um, He has the physical traits and intangible tools that people want in their prototypical quarterback. That's where it ends. The production isn't there. The football IQ is not there. He's not accurate. He can't handle pressure. He's not good. Point blank. He is just not a good quarterback. And the awfulness of this pick I think was exacerbated 
by the fact that at that sixth overall pick, there were two, two elite potential defensive prospects in Josh Allen and Ed Oliver. If you wanted an elite edge rusher, he was there. If you wanted an elite interior defensive lineman, again, elite potential, he was there. Two top five talents right there on a team with a non-existent pass rush, on a team who needs help on the defensive line badly. But no, they went with Daniel Jones. And look, I hope he does well. We all do. But your eyes don't deceive you. The stats don't deceive you. There is nothing that indicates that Daniel Jones is a good quarterback. And just had to change the mic levels there. And really, if we look at it too, let's give Daniel Jones the benefit of the doubt, right? Let's say that he is, at best, giving him the benefit of the doubt. He's a project, right? The fact is, is that they are beholden to Eli Manning. And it is possible that he is there for another year or two years or whatever it may be. Gettleman even said he could see Daniel Jones sitting for a year or two or three. The whole point when you draft these franchise quarterbacks is you get them in there on their rookie contracts so they can play at a high level and produce while they're making very little money on their rookie contract so you get surplus value and can use that available cap to build out your roster around the rookie quarterback and give yourself a window to win and not just win, win in the playoffs, make it to a Super Bowl. Look at the Rams. Look at the Eagles. Look at the Texans. Look at the Bears. Look at the Seahawks when they had Russell Wilson before this contract was signed. They won a Super Bowl. There's numerous examples. It goes on and on and on. That's how you win in the NFL, in the modern NFL. And let's give Daniel Jones the benefit of the doubt and say, I don't believe this, but at the best case, he's a project quarterback who needs time, right? And he sits for two years. He plays two years. And at the point that he maybe becomes competent, his rookie contract is into a fifth-year option, and he's no longer producing you any value. So you never will get the rookie contract value window that a good franchise quarterback gives you when they initially start playing. And again, I don't even believe that he is a project or will eventually become a franchise quarterback. I think Daniel Jones is not going to be a starting quality NFL quarterback. Again, I don't think he's one of the 50 best players in this draft. I don't think he's a good quarterback. I think he has physical tools, and that's it. And the idea of him, in the minds of evaluators who like that physical profile of his and love his potential, the idea of him will always be better than the reality. The reality is a guy who's tall and athletic, who can't hit the side of a barn from 15 yards away, doesn't have the greatest arm, doesn't produce. They lost 59-7 to Wake Forest. You know, shout out to the Demon Deacons, but come on, that guy's the sixth overall pick in the draft? You gotta be kidding me. 
I don't think anyone else would even have touched Daniel Jones in the first round of this draft. And, you know, I think when people talk positively about him, it's the size, it's the athleticism, and it's, Co- and it's Coach Cutcliffe. Take those three things away. What's the positive spin or thing you can say about Daniel Jones? I'll wait because there is none. I was not crazy about Josh Allen last year as a quarterback prospect. Had a decent rookie year, still had glaring accuracy issues. Daniel Jones is a lesser version of Josh Allen. All in all, the franchise has been staked on a quarterback who is at best a project who can maybe eventually become competent. That's his best case scenario. The franchise is staked on that. Incredible how awful and horrible of a draft pick this was. Now, enough about Daniel Jones and the fact that it was a terrible pick and they'll get no rookie contract value from it and he's not the franchise answer, but they've staked the entire franchise on him. Let's move on now to the 17th overall pick that the Giants made in picking Dexter Lawrence. You know, I think the Daniel Jones take there is a take that you'll commonly hear all across the board. I think everyone pretty much recognizes the fact that they were drawn to his size and his athleticism, but that's really the only things that could draw you to Daniel Jones, that he really is a highly, 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 highly flawed quarterback prospect who had no business going in the first round, let alone sixth. 25 guaranteed million dollars to Daniel Jones. Incredible. I could go on and on about Daniel Jones, but let's keep it moving. As I mentioned, the 17th overall pick in the draft. The Giants selected Dexter Lawrence, a defensive tackle from Clemson. Now look, Dexter Lawrence is a fine player. Produced in college, you know, he's an interior presence who's a big disruptor against the run. He's a force in the middle. He's a fine player. He's fine, you know. But here's the thing with the type of player that Dexter Lawrence is and the pick that they picked him at. The thing is, is that, and we saw this last year and in the draft last year and in this past season with Tampa Bay and Vita Vea, right? These big 330, 340-pound nose tackles, they disrupt the run. They're run stoppers. As Dave Gettleman calls them, they are hog mollies. But if this type of player cannot effectively create pressure on the quarterback and rush the passer, this big nose tackle type is a two-down situational run stopper player. And that type of player is not all that valuable, and you should not be spending a pretty good first-round pick or a first-round pick as a whole or major cap space on that type of player. And I look at Dexter Lawrence, you know, like, let's, let's say this, right? Christian, uh, Christian Wilkins, he went 13th to the Dolphins. That's a guy who a big defensive tackle who can be a run stopper and can effectively rush the quarterback. I don't even need to get into this for the elite prospects that Quinn and Williams and Oliver are. But we saw this at 13 when the Dolphins picked him. Wilkins can get after the quarterback and stop the run. We don't know if Dexter Lawrence can effectively rush the passer. And if he can't, then they spent the 17th overall pick 
on a two-down player when they have a glaring need to address their non-existent pass rush. And that 17th overall pick was supposed to be the prized asset acquired for Odell Beckham. And again, to make it even worse, Dexter Lawrence's ceiling is being as good as Snacks Harrison, who the Giants traded last year for a fifth-round pick to create this need. Put it all together here. I mean, come on. Now, if Dexter Lawrence can rush the passer also, then fine. It's a fine pick. But if he can't, so you can't be picking a two-down player like that this high. Tampa Bay learned that last year when they picked Vita Vea. That type of player, that archetype of a player, is not that valuable to use a first-round pick or a lot of cap space on. So for the Giants' sake, they better hope that Dexter Lawrence can effectively rush the passer, can be able to be a presence um, in the pass rush, and is not just a run stopper. Because if that's all he is, that's a two-down player, that's a 17th overall pick, and you turned Odell Beckham into a two-down a two-down player, an adequate safety, and a depth defensive end. You cannot value a hog molly like that, as Dave Gettleman likes to call them, if they can't rush the passer. I've said it over and over, but that's really the glaring thing here. You can't be using big assets on two down players. That's a premium asset, a 17th overall pick in the first round. Now, at pick 30, they moved up the Giants from pick 37, uh, included 114 and 118 to get up to 30, selected DeAndre Baker, cornerback out of Georgia. Now, this pick was fine. Um, personally, I had uh, Byron Murphy, Rock Yassin, and Greedy Williams. Um, Yassin one, Murphy two, Williams three, Baker four. That was my order on my big board. So I had three corners ahead of Baker at that spot, at that position. Baker was the first corner selected in the draft. But I cannot fault this pick at all. I mean, Baker... In these last two years, he's not given up a passing touchdown. He's won awards. He's a guy who's going to be versatile and flexible in their secondary. Guy you can play on the outside in the slot, can play in different packages. He'll be a very useful player for them. Really, you can never have enough corners. Every team should have four or five good corners on them. Or if not good corners, solid corners. So I cannot fault this pick at all. Just as a matter of preference, I had three guys ahead of him. But again, it's really just pick your preference of those four guys. Um, So I cannot fault that pick for the Giants. So we look at their first round for the Giants, a horrific pick at six, perhaps the worst draft pick in the history of the NFL draft. A pick at 17, which is to be determined based off of Lawrence's skill set, but if that skill set does not materialize or is not there, is a pick of a player type that is way too high for where that player should be picked or valued at. And 30, fine pick. Side notes from the Giants here. Let's move past the first round. Um, O'Shane's Zimenez um, from Old Dominion as the 95th pick. Um, again, that was the um, the third asset re- acquired for Odell Beckham. 
I look at him as a guy who's just going to be a solid depth um, defensive end. You know, he's not necessarily a guy I look at and say, hey, he's a starter. You know, like a nice third, fourth on the depth chart defensive end who can mix in here and there and can be, you know, somewhat productive and reliable. Again, nothing special, nothing bad, just a guy who adds depth and production at under the starters when they eventually figure out that pass rush. Um, but really, we put it all together. Odell Beckham, the third best wide receiver in the NFL, a dynamic Hall of Fame caliber playmaker for Dexter Lawrence, Jabril Peppers, and O'Shane's Zimenez. On a positive note from that downer, um, Julian Love, who the Giants took in the fourth round, I think that was great value. Love, to me, probably should have gone in the early third round. I thought that was tremendous, tremendous value. The Giants really stocking up on young corners at this point. Again, we mentioned DeAndre Baker, Julian Love in the fourth. Um, Ballantyne was picked in a late round. Um, they picked Sam Beal in the supplemental draft. That's four young corners right there. They have Janoris Jenkins. They're loading up on corners. Again, every good team should have four or five good to solid corners, so I cannot fault this strategy. I thought Love was a great value. Baker was a fine pick. So as far as the corners are concerned, that's a positive for the Giants. Lawrence and Jones, especially Jones, a disaster. Lawrence, a to-be-determined. But if that skill set does not materialize, then a negative. Now let's move on to the other team that really interested me in the first round, and that's the Oakland Raiders. And I would not classify the Oakland Raiders to me as a loser of the first round. To me, they're the biggest question mark and the biggest uh, to be determined. Uh, so let's start with the obvious here. Cleveland Farrell at fourth overall. That, okay, we knew coming into the draft that Mike Mayock and John Gruden sent the scouts home. Ian Rappaport said that the, there was a potential surprise coming at number four, and that's what we got. We got a surprise in Cleveland Farrell at number four. Now, I will say this. I like Cleland Farrell as a prospect a pretty good amount. Um, I look at him and I see a guy who pretty clearly is a starting defensive end who's going to get after the quarterback, he's going to be able to get sacks, and he's going to be a very productive, useful, starter-quality player for a pretty long time. Now, I do not look at him and see a guy who's an all-pro or has elite potential, but a solid starting defensive end? Sure. A guy who creates pressure in the pass rush? Sure. But, what a reach. This guy should have gone probably around between 17 and 26 in that range. Um, so, in that, there's no fault in the Raiders you know, finding their guy and saying, hey, this is our guy, we're going to get him no matter what. If you believe in a guy, that's what you do. And in Farrell's case, he's going to be a productive player and is a good prospect. However, they had him ranked at a level so far above the consensus on him. So, even if all they got was a fourth or a fifth or a sixth, even if it was something very minor and not necessarily that valuable, they had to trade down because they could have gotten him 10 picks later just to get something in addition to him and to get him, him being Cleveland Farrell, 
at a lower amount of guaranteed money and per year cap hit based on him being a lower pick, they had to do that because their consensus was so far above everyone else's. There was no way that if they had moved down, you know, of course this is assuming there was a market to move up to four, but if the market was low enough where they were willing to move back, say, you know, four spots, five spots, seven spots, eight spots, just for the cost of maybe two fourth-round picks, there would have been a big market for that. And they still would have gotten Farrell, his contract would have been lower, and they would have had some additional picks to mess around with, move around, accumulate, trade around, or whatever. So I think it's a big mistake by them to have not made a, uh, the market low enough that they would have definitely been able to trade back and still get Farrell. Um, however, as much as I like Farrell, there were two elite defensive prospects available. Well, honestly, three if you want to mention Devin White as a linebacker, but Josh Allen is an elite pass rusher prospect. Elite potential. You can't pick Cleveland Farrell over that. Ed Oliver on the interior. That's an elite potential interior defensive lineman. You can't pick Cleveland Farrell over that. I personally liked Brian Burns more than Cleveland Farrell. So, they liked their guy. He's going to be productive. It's a monster reach. They should have moved down to get some assets for him to lower his contract. And you just cannot pick him over prospects of the caliber of Allen or Oliver. Um, Again, I like him. I think he's got Cleveland Farrell. I like him. I think he's going to be a productive starter for them for years to come. He'll be a solid player. I don't see monster potential in him like I do in a Josh Allen or an Ed Oliver. And I think that they did a poor job managing their assets. They could have made that trade market requiring such a low amount of extra picks in addition to swapping firsts that they could have had a ton of suitors to choose from. I think they made a mistake there not trading down and getting Farrell lower. Let's move past Cleveland Farrell, the shock of the draft, uh, him and Daniel Jones. Um, except Farrell will end up being a productive, useful, starting NFL player. Um, let's move to Josh Jacobs at 24 for the Raiders. Now, and just like other people, my philosophy on running backs is unless you are a contending elite team who's just missing you know, some sort of production or high-level production in the backfield, that's really your only hole or need, and you're an elite contending team, then sure, fine, you can do it. But if you're not... You should never pick a running back in the first round of the draft. There's too many running backs to be had who can produce at a solid, sufficient level in the second, third, fourth round, can be had for cheap in free agency. You can get production that gets you far in the playoffs with a committee of cheap running backs used with mid-level, mediocre assets like third or fourth round picks. You can't pick a running back in the first round unless, as I mentioned, you're an elite team who has that one hole. Jacobs is fine. You know, he's a fine player. He's a solid running back. Doesn't have necessarily a ton of wear and tear on him. He's fine. He's solid. I don't see huge upside in Josh Jacobs. And I don't see his production that he's going to give them being so much better than what you would get if you picked, you know, next year's supposed to be a good class of running backs, right? I don't see Josh Jacobs being so much better than a second-round quality running back or a third-round quality running back or the quality of a couple cheap running backs signing free agency for a committee. I I think he'll be an 
equal-ish producer than those other alternatives. And when you're a team like the Raiders, who got that pick for Khalil Mack in addition to the other pick and some other stuff, you can't be using that on a running back. Come on. The positional value is just not there to ever justify, besides that one scenario, picking a running back in the first round. And it's not as if Josh Jacobs is so much better than a second round or third round quarter or running back prospect. Okay, third round's a bit of a stretch. He is not really all that better than a second round running back prospect. We look at 24, the guys who they could have had. Montez Sweat was there, Byron Murphy, Rock Yassin, Greedy Williams, even Irv Smith at tight end. Those are all areas that they could have addressed, have a need at, and decided not to address. And instead picked a running back. Yes, they you know could use a running back. You could have signed two or three cheap running backs in free agency, made a committee with Jalen Rashard as your pass-catching running back, and moved along from there. I don't like picking Jacobs here at 24. I think that's a waste of value and a waste of a first-round pick. I have nothing bad to say about Jonathan Abram at 27. I think that's a solid pick. I like him as a strong safety type. Um, You can see with how the Raiders drafted, um, they went for two types of players. One, guys who are really physical players, and two, guys who played for Clemson or Alabama. Uh, They came back again at 40 and picked Trayvon Mullins, a corner. Uh, Fine prospect, but ahead of Greedy Williams? Come on, you can't be picking Trayvon Mullins ahead of Greedy Williams. But again, Mullins went to Clemson. Um, Jonathan Abram is a physical hitting safety. You look at the rest of their draft. They picked physical players and Clemson players. Shout out to Hunter Renfro. So you can see that whether it was Gruden or Mayock, Mayock was at the national championship game. They liked a lot of those prospects, and they want to build a physical football team. I think what they did with those three first-round picks, picking Mullins at 40, uh, picking Renfro later on, and making some other picks, I think what they did was they picked a lot of guys who you know, have the ability to be solid, solid players, but no one who has the potential to be a stud or an elite player or an all-pro player. They picked a lot of guys who were, you know, solid players who can start and contribute and be productive, but no one who has that potential to be at a level above the rest, making all-pro teams, um, winning offensive or defensive player of the year awards. They did not come out of this draft with anyone of that caliber. And based off of the assets they had, where their own pick was, they had the ability to come out of this draft with that, and they did not. And I think that's a mistake. Again, I'm not calling them a loser in this draft. I think they're a to-be-determined, but I think that they could have done better despite making a bunch of solid picks. So now I just want to go through some picks that I really liked from round one. There's not really a ton of rhyme or reason to the order I put them in. You know, it's just guys who I like the fit, or I really like the prospect, or I like the value of where they were picked at. I like the team that they're going to be slotting in there for, whatever it may be. 
Just some picks I really, really liked in the first round. Um, and if you follow me on Twitter, again, at BradClear underscore, clear spelled K-L-I-E-R, you would have seen some of these already. Um, the last pick of the first round, Nikhil Harry, wide receiver. Um, he was the number one wide receiver on my board. And of course, he ends up on the New England Patriots. He's going to thrive there. The Patriots, you know, they come into the draft every year. They they win championships. They come into the draft, and they have so many. They have such a smart, smart Hall of Famer in Bill Belichick, who's the mastermind behind all of this. Came out of this draft. Um, I think they had three thirds and two seconds and a first. They killed it in this draft. Um, Chase Winovich, I thought was a great pick. Damien Harris was a great pick, um, and then Nikhil Harry. Um, as I just mentioned, was the number one wide receiver on my board, and they got him at 32. I thought that was an excellent pick. Love that pick. Montez Sweat at 26. I said before the first round that I thought Montez Sweat was going to be the biggest value of anyone picked in the first round, and that's exactly what he was. Um, You know, he may or may not have had that heart condition misdiagnosed, in which case the Washington Redskins got themselves a top 10 caliber edge rusher at 26. And yeah, they gave up the 45th pick this year and their second for next year, which will likely be in a similar spot. But Montez Sweat is going to give them a lot of value over where he was picked at and what he will cost because this is a top 10 talent that fell 16 spots lower than he should have. Excellent, excellent, excellent value, the steal of the first round. And that Washington front seven now, you know, he doesn't get a lot of play, but that's a sneaky, really, really formidable front seven there in Washington. Um, Andre Dillard at 22. Simply put, Jason Peters is going to be retired in a year or two. And when he's retired, the Eagles will need to replace an elite level offensive tackle while at the same time remaining a contending championship-chasing team. So, you get Andre Dillard, who, you know, Jason Peters has gotten hurt from time to time in season. Dillard can step in then, and when Peters is ultimately done, you have a guy in Andre Dillard, who I thought was a top 15 talent, to slot right in there immediately once Peters is done alongside of their other elite tackle, Lane Johnson. And all it costs them... To move up those three spots was a fourth and a sixth. So getting Dillard in there now so that you can continue having that offensive tackle spot be a position of strength and you won't have a drop-off while you're being a contending team, I thought that was excellent maneuvering by Howie Roseman. Love the Eagles moving up to get Dillard at 22. Noah Fant at 20 to Denver. Um, I thought Denver did great trading down from 10 to 20, picking up a second and a third. The top three tight ends in this draft, Hawkinson, Fant, and Irv Smith, I think all three of them are going to be studs. We know how much Joe Flacco loves him, a good tight end. I think Fant is going to be a very, very good tight end for a very long time. So getting a second and a third on top of getting Fant, great work by Denver. Love that pick at 20. Brian Burns at 16. Uh, It's Carolina. Look, I look at Brian Burns. Brian Burns is just a solid, solid outside linebacker who's going to produce and consistently play at a starter quality level. Just a safe, really, really solid pick. Just such a solid pick. Really like that one at 16. 
Uh, Devin Bush at 10. I mean, we look at linebackers in the modern NFL. You got to have speed. You got to be able to affect the um, pass rush. Got to be able to affect the run stop. Got to be able to get end-to-end quarterback the defense. Be a beast in all different areas. Devin Bush has that ability. And getting him at 10, he's a Pittsburgh Steelers type of player. He's going to make the entire defense around him better by being that fast, consistent, staunch linebacker presence in the middle. And then Ed Oliver at 9. I mean, a top 5 talent. The Buffalo Bills wanted to go defensive tackle. And the best defensive tackle outside of Quinn and Williams fell to them at 9. They got a top 5 talent at 9. So instead of picking Christian Wilkins, who I like... They got a beast, top five talent, elite potential defensive tackle in Ed Oliver. Shout out to Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott. They've had a great offseason there in Buffalo, especially with this pick at nine. Now, one questionable move I wanted to get to in the first round uh, was Titus Howard at 22 or 23 to the Houston Texans. Um, the Texans desperately need offensive line help to protect or protect Deshaun Watson. Now, Howard is an upside play because he is a developmental offensive tackle prospect. He could be great. He has great upside, huge upside. But he's not going to be able to provide Deshaun Watson protection that the Houston Texans desperately need right away. So it doesn't solve their immediate need. It solves it later down the line. I get why they picked him, but... When you had Cody Ford available and you had Jawan Taylor available, I don't know. I think I would have picked a guy who could have helped me immediately instead of a guy who's an upside play. Let's move along to the second round now. Um, To me, the thing that always gets me, and it got me last year when I was doing the live draft show, um, was that if you can get multiple picks in the early second round, you're golden because there is a consistent amount of of top-level talent that ends up making its way to the second round. Um, If I was an NFL GM, I'd just be trying like crazy to get as many second-round picks as I could. Um, Last year, you know, we had Harold Landry. I was calling for Harold Landry last year to be picked starting around pick 17 or 18. Made it to the second round. He had a good year with the Tennessee Titans. Austin Corbett, Nick Chubb, um... Jackson, who the Packers drafted a corner, a lot of talent made it to the second round last year. This year was no different. And there was a lot of value to be had in picking some of these guys in the second round. The guys who jumped out to me, Jawan Taylor. Now I get that there was some sort of medical concern. I thought Jawan Taylor was a top 12, top 15 talent. And he was had at pick 35 by Jacksonville. Jacksonville came out of their first two picks getting a top five five talent at number seven, an elite potential pass rusher, and got a day one starter at right tackle who should have been a top 15 pick had there not been an injury concern at 35. That is an excellent, excellent elite even, shout out Tony Khan, to the two or your two first picks in the draft. Cody Ford at 38 made it to Buffalo. Same thing for Buffalo. They got a top five talent with elite potential on the defensive side of the ball, lower than he should have been picked at nine. 
Cody Ford, in my mind, was a top 15, top 20 talent. Um, He's going to step in on day one, and he'll be a starter on the offensive line. So again, Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott continuing to have a great offseason with two great picks to start their draft. Irv Smith. I thought Irv Smith would have been a fine pick for New England at 32, even with Oakland at 24. He made it all the way to 50, allowing Minnesota now to be okay when they either inevitably, one, trade Kyle Rudolph, or two, let him walk in free agency um, after this year. I think Irv Smith is going to be a stud tight end, just like I do Noah Fant and TJ Hawkinson. I thought that was an incredible value to get Irv Smith all the way at 50. Byron Murphy, the first pick of the second round, cornerback at 33. Again, he was a first-round talent. To me, he was the number two corner on my board. Uh, Greedy Williams, getting traded up for by Cleveland at 46. Again, smart teams make smart moves. John Dorsey made a smart move. The Browns make smart moves, getting up there to get Greedy Williams. As I said earlier, you can never have enough corners. You should have four or five good corners on every team. Denzel Ward, TJ Carey, Greedy Williams. Um, AJ Brown, I really liked a lot at wide receiver. Tennessee at 51, great value. And Nasir Adderley at 60 to the Chargers. I thought Nasir Adderley was a borderline first round pick. I would have loved him in that 25 to 35 range. He made it to 60. Great pick by the Chargers. Now, the guys I did not, did not mention yet, the number one corner on my board, Rock Yassin, and the number three wide receiver on my board, Paris Campbell, because they both ended up on the Indianapolis Colts. And Yassin at 34 from Temple, he was the number one corner on my board. As I mentioned, Campbell is my number three wide receiver. Chris Ballard, the GM of the Colts, he just operates on another level. Um, he makes shrewd moves and trades. He managed their cap so well this offseason, uh, not spending a ton even though they had a lot of space. He killed it in the second round last year uh, when he got Darius Leonard um, and Braden Smith. This year in the second round, he got himself, in my mind, the number one corner and the number three wide receiver in the entire draft. And at 49, got himself a decent edge rusher in Benogu. And he picked up a second round pick for next year in trading down from 26 when Washington traded up to get Montez Sweat. So, what Chris Ballard did was he hit like crazy in the second round last year based off of you know my board and other people's boards, hit like crazy in the second round this year's draft, and now, after doing it two years in a row, has the ammo once again to hit multiple times in the second round next year. You just They're just operating on another level here. Excellent, excellent work in continuing the trend of having multiple seconds, continuing that trend into next year, and getting really some top-level players. I think Yasin has the ability to be an NFL starter day one at corner. Paris Campbell, I really, really like a lot. You know, everyone talks about Hollywood Brown out of Oklahoma. Paris Campbell should have gotten more attention than he did. Um, so great work by Chris Ballard here in the second round to get these guys and to get a second round pick for next year. 
Now let's move on to the big discussion that I wanted to talk about. And that is the finally, finally occurring trade of Josh Rosen to the Miami Dolphins. So, as you know, if you've listened to this show before, if you've read my stuff on Twitter, if you've watched me on one-on-one sports, I am as big of a proponent of Josh Rosen as you can be. I think the guy has all the tools to be a franchise quarterback, to be a top 12 quarterback in the NFL for a long period of time. I truly believe that. And despite that, initially, I was against Miami picking or trading for Josh Rosen because I thought, you know, just put all your eggs in the basket of going for Tua or uh, playing your cards at the top of the first round next year with the quarterbacks coming out. But I've changed my mind on that. And I made, I changed my mind, and then they made the trade. And man, what a trade Chris Greer and the Miami Dolphins made for Josh Rosen. So let's get into that. The trade that they made for Josh Rosen, who I think is going to be great Great, 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 great. A top 12 level quarterback in the NFL for a long time. And I get what happened with the Cardinals. They saw Murray as a better quarterback prospect who fit their scheme better. And the quarterback matters so much that you know what? They liked Murray more. They thought they would win with him more. So that's who they picked. I respectfully disagree with that evaluation. But if that's their evaluation, fine. I can't fault it. This trade for Miami is such a low-risk move with the potential for such an incredibly high reward. If it works out, which I think it will, they made out like bandits in terms of how little it costs them in terms of assets, in terms of draft capital, to get what I think is their franchise quarterback. You know, in a vacuum, pick 62 and a fifth round pick in the following draft in the context of what it usually costs to acquire a franchise quarterback is nothing. That's nothing. It usually costs you a year of bad football and a very high draft pick or mortgaging your future by trading a significant amount of premium draft capital to get yourself a quarterback prospect with the talent and potential of someone like Josh Rosen. And based on circumstance and um, really shrewd value judgment here, the Dolphins took one of the last few picks of the second round and a future fifth to get their franchise quarterback. And on top of that, his entire signing bonus was paid for by the Cardinals. Josh Rosen is only going to make just over $6 million total for the next three years. His cap hit will be around $1 million, $2 million, and $3 million each year. I don't know the exact numbers year to year, but those are the numbers we're looking at. That is incredibly cheap. The only guaranteed money they owe him is $6 million. For context, 
he was already paid $11 million by the Arizona Cardinals. So you're getting a guy who is incredibly cost-effective, and you got him at a draft capital asset cost that is way lower than what it usually costs to get a franchise quarterback. Way lower. Pick 62 and a fifth-round pick for a franchise quarterback? Incredible. Furthermore, I think that they would really be able to do here assuming this works out, which I am assuming it will because I think Rosen's a great prospect, I think this gives them or would give them a major competitive advantage because they'd have a a really an all-time cheap, productive rookie contract quarterback based off of not having to pay in the bonus and the cap hit per year, and that would allow them to take their substantial draft capital for next year, which I will get into in a bit, their substantial cap space for next year, which I'll get into in a bit, they can devote all of that to the rest of their roster where they have a ton of needs and a ton of holes that they need to address because they would have gotten the quarterback position out of the way with a relatively low use of draft capital and assets. This roster has a lot of needs. And if you can devote all of that draft capital to those needs, It gives you a big advantage. And then when you're addressing all those needs with the draft, with free agency, your quarterback's that cheap, it gives you that much more wiggle room, that much more space as far as the cap is concerned. Now, if it doesn't work out, yeah, it would stink to lose the 60-second pick and not get much out of it because you can get a very solid contributing player at lots of positions at the 60-second pick. But with a quarterback of this potential and this much of a low cost and the competitive advantage that you would intake and incur based off of that, you have to take this chance. And if it doesn't work out and you lose out on getting something out of the 60-second pick, it's worth it because you should be devoting all your resources to get the best young quarterback you can. Take as many stabs at it as you can. This is an all-time stab as far as the situation, the costs, and the circumstances. You have to take this chance if you're the Miami Dolphins. Now, even with Josh Rosen, the Miami Dolphins, similarly to the Arizona Cardinals last year, have a horrible offensive line. They addressed it a little bit, uh, picking an offensive guard out of Wisconsin um, in the third round. But they have a glaring need at right tackle. They need to address this offensive line amongst amongst other things. So it's not as if Rosen is walking into this amazing situation in terms of protection, because he's not. Um, as far as weapons, they have Kenny Britt, they have Albert Wilson, uh, they have Kenyon Drake. So the weapons are not that great either. So it's not as if he's walking into this amazing situation, because as we know, this team has a lot of holes. But he is really going to be catered to, and they're going to be invested in his success for all of the benefits that could come with it that I mentioned. Even with Rosen being good, they'll be bad enough to have a top three draft pick in this coming draft next year. And assuming that Rosen is good, and he's the quarterback that I think he is, and they get the first pick in the draft, 
in the draft where Tua is coming out, could you imagine the draft capital haul that they could get by essentially auctioning off that pick to the highest bidder? They could get themselves close to a Robert Griffin III level trade return if Rosen is their quarterback and they're at one and they have no need to pick a quarterback. They already have so much draft capital for next year's draft and they could increase it for next year and the year after that in the premium pick level. To give context to that draft pick capital they have for next year, right now the Dolphins have their own first round pick, which as I mentioned I think will be in the top three, their own second round pick, the second round pick they acquired via the trade with the Saints from Thursday night, their own third round pick, a third round comp pick for Jawan James signing elsewhere, their own fourth round pick, Tennessee's fourth round pick via the Ryan Tannehill trade, a fifth round comp pick for Cameron Wake, <clears throat> a sixth round pick of their own, a sixth round pick via Dallas for Robert Quinn, their own seventh round pick, and the Kansas City Chiefs seventh round pick uh, for Jordan Lucas. Let's do the math there. That's a, a an additional pick in every single round besides two. Five rounds with two picks, two rounds with one. Twelve picks right there. And the Dolphins are set to have over $100 million in cap space next summer. And on top of that, their quarterback may only cost them $2 million against the cap. This has the potential to be a Browns-esque teardown and buildup to the same success level in much quicker fashion. Chris Greer did an elite job managing his assets last night, turning pick 48 and 114 into 62, 243 in a second for next year, and then taking 62 and turning that with the fifth into Josh Rosen, effectively as a whole, turning 48, 114, and a fifth for next year, into Rosen, a second for next year, and a seventh for next year. That's incredible. So you put all that together. This has the potential to be just like the Browns over these last few years, where they tore it down, progressively built it up over a couple of years. I think the Dolphins have the chance to do that and to come out of it just as good as the Browns are now. You know, whether they make more trades once they've gotten good or whatever, they are going to end up being a very good football team if they manage all these assets well. And I think it could happen in very quick fashion, assuming Rosen is good, assuming they make use of this cap space next year, and assuming they use and make use and gain more picks, which they already have a ton of for next year's draft. I cannot say enough positive things about Chris Greer and the job he has done and about this trade for Josh Rosen. Now, the last thing I want to touch on here um, with this discussion of the draft <clears throat> is the Seattle Seahawks, who came into this draft this year with nine total picks, or excuse me, with four, ah, I already spoiled it, with four total picks and made so many trade downs and acquired so many additional picks that they added the equivalent value of the 6th or 7th overall pick 
if you add up all of the value that they acquired through all the picks that they acquired. Put all those picks together that they added, they added value equivalent to adding a 6th or 7th overall pick player. They came into this draft with 4 picks, and by the end of this day 3, which we are at right now, they will have made 10. At one point, they had, they had made pick 29, picking LJ, uh, LJ Collier from TCU. I don't know if I pronounced his last name right. Uh, but they picked LJ Collier at 29. And at one point, they had made that pick, and they had also acquired, via trading down multiple times from pick 21, they had acquired pick 47, 77, 114, 118, 132, and 142. Now, they maneuvered a little bit. They traded up a couple of times. They traded down again after that. And it all ended up turning into 10 picks. But when it comes to the NFL draft, it's such a crapshoot that you really have to give yourself as many hits as possible, as many chances as possible, as many opportunities as possible. You know, last year... The Seahawks, I thought, made a bad move without a second-round pick and having a late first, keeping that pick and picking Rashard Penny. That, I thought, was dumb. This year, they seem to have learned from their mistakes, have another circumstance dictating these moves, which I'll get into. But this is smart maneuvering by John Schneider and the Seahawks, getting as many picks as they can in this draft. What's most important for this strategy... Russell Wilson is now making what's going to count as $35 million against the cap. They had to find cheap, productive players to build out this roster to combat the monster per year cap hit that Russell Wilson has. So how do you do that? You give yourself as many picks as possible to have as many cheap, productive players as possible. That's the only way... They're going to be able to effectively build out this roster with Russell Wilson making $35 million a year. And by the way, I totally support them giving him that deal. They'd be foolish and stupid to have not done that. But they recognize the need to get as many cheap players around Wilson as possible, made 10 picks in this draft. As of right now, they are set to have, just like Miami, 12 picks in the draft next year. Um... They gained a second for the Frank Clark trade. They'll have a third-round comp pick coming in for Earl Thomas, a fourth-round comp pick coming in for Justin Coleman, and a sixth and a seventh. Um, They should be getting in comp picks for Shamar Steven and Brett Hundley. So they should have 12 picks next year, made 10 this year. I'm sure they'll make some trades up and down or whatever next year. they got to get as many hits as possible to give them as many chances as succeeding or at succeeding of getting an effective, talented, productive young player on this team at as many positions as possible. With the Russell Wilson contract, this team, the Seattle Seahawks, has the greatest need to hit in the draft of any team in the league because of how they have to force or how they're forced to construct their roster. I think Schneider, John Schneider, went about this excellently. I thought he had a great draft. I think they're set up great with this strategy to build in the draft and build and develop around Wilson's big cap figure. 
The only pick that I look at that they made in this draft that I wasn't crazy about, I thought they reached uh, when they picked Marquise Blair, the safety. Um, He's not a bad player, but picking him where they did was a reach. And Nasir Adderley was on the board, who I think is a much better prospect. So I fault that pick. You know, I understand the scheme fit in that Earl Thomas spot. It makes sense. Again, though, they probably could have traded down one more time and maybe picked up one more pick. But man, as a whole, put it all together, I love the NFL draft. I thought the draft this year was very fun. Wasn't necessarily um, had the craziest moves outside of Farrell or Jones, but it was just a fun, solid draft uh, with a lot of trade downs in terms of picks, a lot of maneuvering, a lot of really interesting prospects going in all different directions falling, going lower than they should have, whatever. I thought this was a very, very fun NFL draft. Shout out to Field Yates, though, on Twitter. Field Yates was great. He had every detail of the many um, traded picks that happened all throughout the draft. Really love all those nerdy 143 and 203 for 156 and 191 trades. Uh, I just took those numbers out of thin air. But shout out to Field Yates for all of those trade terms. So that'll do it for this episode of After the Final Whistle. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear. Shout out to WSOE. I am on right now. Or if you were listening after the fact on podcast.com or Apple Podcasts, follow me on Twitter at Brad Clear underscore. Clear is spelled K-L-I-E-R. Shout out to you, the listener. Shout out to Chris Greer and the Dolphins. Shout out to John Schneider and the Seahawks. Shout out to Josh Rosen. Shout out to the NFL Draft. And as always, signing off, I am your host, Brad Clear. Goodbye and good night.